Hi, and welcome to KCL Diverse Lawyers' first ever podcast on legal developments in the LGBTQ plus sphere. I'm Corliss Say, and I'm here with my co-host Stella Miettinen. Today we're kicking off our mini-series with our guest speaker Robin White, a barrister at Old Square Chambers. We're really happy to have you here, Robin. Could you do a quick introduction for our listeners? Yes, of course. Uh, Hello, I'm Robin Moira White. I'm a barrister at Old Square Chambers. and I practice in employment and discrimination. And I just a few months ago clocked up 25 years in practice. I've been at this quite a long while. But I, in 2011, became the first barrister to transition in practice from male to female. Um, which I remind myself is now, in a few months' time, it'll be 10 years ago. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that introduction. So we'll just jump into the questions. As you were saying, Robin, you're well known for your transition from male to female whilst in practice at the bar. Do you think your gender identity affected your choice of practice? Well, I'd been, I'm 25 years tall and I only transitioned 10 years ago. So um, I think not. Um, But I... I was an employer. I was a manager in industry before I was a lawyer. And so I've always liked people-based either employment or work or law. So uh, yes, I appreciate that there are fortunes to be earned if you argue about when two oil tankers bump into each other. But I like cases that are about people. Is there any experience that comes to mind when you think of these um, experiences with people? Or did you enjoy the the day-to-day Uh, work that you had with others? It it works the other way around. I can remember some horrendous times when barristers who haven't had that life experience, I mean, we're unusual as a jurisdiction in terms of allowing people straight into law after university. I mean, as you know, in America, law is a postgraduate school, not undergraduate undergraduate school, so you tend to be a bit older when you start practice anyway. I can remember a case where a junior barrister from another chambers asked a client who'd been through um, a horrendous situation at work but work, worked in the payroll section uh, and asked a question along the lines of well people were paid on a Thursday yes and they, they got their pay wrong on occasion or the organization got their pay wrong yes and they would ring you up on a Friday morning to hassle you about that yes uh, and that was just as bad as being threatened with having your job taken away from you and and the court just everybody sort of drew breath and the, the judge said no 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 different question you know that's just not realistic in terms of how you deal with people so you've got to if you if you have a people-based practice then you've got to find that way to interact with people then perhaps looking more into the vein of not direct representation one-to-one but in increasing the proportion of lgbtq barristers is that something that is important to ensure that these you know this understanding and this uh, of difference is kind of maintained in practice it's really important that the legal profession reflects society so uh, take a non-lgbt example a quarter of a century ago women were very much more poorly represented in the legal profession than they are today and if we hadn't been taking steps to sort that out then that would be clearly wrong you know the, the there is still a view uh, someone's view of a barrister is sort of uh, leo mckern playing horace rumpole you know short stripy trousers uh, pork pie hat moustache and uh, fortunately the three of us on the podcast today none of the three of us have a moustache um so that's that's jolly good and and the same is true 
in in terms of LGBT uh, individuals that if the bar has got to the point where it reflects society, then it will do its job better. And, and that's why it's important. And it's about making, um, making people comfortable to be themselves. Uh, I avoid, I try and avoid those cliches about bring your whole self to work, because it's not about that as a barrister, when you're in court, I'm not a trans barrister, I'm not a female barrister, I'm my client's barrister, and it shouldn't matter what particular protected characteristic or personal characteristic I had. I'm there to give my client the best possible service. But if the bar are seen to be reflecting the mix of sexes in society, the mix of races and the LGBT mix, then we'll be doing a better job. On the point that the bar should reflect the um, makeup of society, are there any initiatives at your chambers that you feel are especially commendable and are especially effective at promoting this? I've been varying in my thought about um, quotas, things like quotas, because there's an inherent unfairness with a quota, because what can happen with a quota is that someone who perhaps is, is less able is put into the position because they have the quota. But if you look at what's happened in Parliament, the Labour Party has used quotas, the Conservative Party has not. And this is absolutely not a political comment about which side of the political spectrum I'm on. But Labour has been much more successful in increasing its female representation in, in Parliament. And if you, if you want to bring change, sometimes you have to do things that make people a little uncomfortable. Now, I'm on the other hand, I'm very supportive. So I, I hate me dotes about whether, because ultimately the client needs to have the most competent representation. And I'm, I'm personally very active in, I, I try never to turn down a request from a student society or a student mooting competition to be involved. Because I know uh, from what people have said to me, how important it is to see that people can be successful with a particular protected characteristic. And, and that, shows to people coming after that there isn't a bar and there isn't you know we and I, I can speak for chambers i i involved in the pupillage selection process for chambers and we don't care which what protected characteristic you have we're after the brightest and the best and people should apply certainly to old square and i'm sure is is true of the vast majority of the bar um people should apply with complete confidence that that you know all they have to do is is show that they're the best candidate and they'll get the place uh, and they'll get the career. It's what I have seen from my work with other industries and I work a bit with the rail industry on, on diversity and inclusion. And there are some, once again, there are some things I was dismissive of. So almost the sort of tokenism of painting a rainbow on a train, for example, but um, it, it sounds a bit, you know, what's that really going to achieve? But I, I am close to people who work on a rail company called Southeastern that runs around Kent normally. And they stuck a rainbow vinyl wrap on the front of a train. And the positive response that they got from the LGBT members of staff of that company who really felt supported and encouraged and, and equally the positive effect of leaders in a field um, especially if they're allies. Actually, sometimes it's more important if they're not LGBT themselves, but they're an ally that comes out and says, I'll be part of Pride, I'll be part of doing something. We will stick up a logo with a rainbow background to it 
because during Pride Month or whatever, just to show that we're supportive of one particular group. And it, the, the evidence also is that it doesn't just help that group. So there's a crossover bit of evidence. I, I, I do a lot of cases related to disability. And there was a great fear when disability discrimination was brought in 25 years ago that other members of staff who were having to do the heavy lifting because the disabled person couldn't do it or take bits of the duties or help the person upstairs or whatever it turns out to be would feel put upon and employers were really concerned about that and in fact that's not the reaction that that other that employers have had in the workplace firstly if you look after disabled people you get an enormously loyal workforce but the non-disabled people look at the disabled person being looked after and say hmm here's a really as is a really supportive employer and there's a person who needs some help and my employer's giving them help when they need help and perhaps if i get to the point where i need help my employer will be helpful and supportive about me. I, I completely uh, see where you're coming from in that perspective. And especially when you're touching on, I feel like if this were to come down into an umbrella, uh, perhaps linking to the, the train uh, picture that was put on, protecting these characteristics, whether it's sexuality or gender orientation or disability, as you touched on, you know, can really help individuals feel safe and represented beyond this mere tokenism. You know, and I think this is something that arose in your commendable work on the recent Rose Taylor v. Um, uh, Rose Taylor and Jaguar Land Rover case limited, mm. you know, highlighting this role of previously unprotected characteristics of gender reassignment um, under the Equality Act of 2010. So we believe that this case, and you can uh, touch on this more in a second, uh, re represents a major development of UK employment laws and how this can be supported by these tribunal cases. Um, would you agree with this? Yeah, I think um, Taylor was significant because there was a strong feeling that the definition of gender reassignment under the Equality Act only applied, applied to binary transitions like mine. Um, and that people whose gender identity was more complex is somewhere on the spectrum in between probably weren't protected because the idea was that reassignment was from one end of the spectrum to the other. And we looked the tribunal had a good look at what parliament had intended when the equality act was passed and very clearly says transition doesn't have to be from a to z you know where a is one of the spectrum and z is at the other it can be to somewhere in between and so therefore people who move away from their natal sex in terms of their gender identity will be protected and and that is a bit of a step change uh, it's not going to be easy for employers because um employers and other employees sometimes get that you know it's difficult to get the head around the fact that that john is now jane or the other way around and, and that's difficult enough um now if john is going to turn out to be arrow or owl or something non-binary and requires not just the alternative pronouns that people would use but something um more unusual or if they're gender fluid and they're Jane one day and John the next, you know, that's even more complex to get right in the workplace. And the vast majority of people want to get these things right, want to work with their work colleagues and need to be helped to, to learn the change in that there's going to be. And, that, and there's a responsibility, I think, on LGBT people as well to recognize that, um, that there needs to be learning in the rest of the population 
and that that doesn't always happen overnight. It, it's not the responsibility of the particular LGBT person in the workplace because that, that would place an impossible burden on them, as to some extent happened with Rose Taylor in the workplace, if you read the judgment. But there has to be an understanding that pe some people will struggle with, um, you know, if, if someone's known someone for a long period of time and then they transition, it takes a while for that mental rewiring to, to take and that there needs to be an element of acceptance and generosity in both both directions in, in such a process. I think the um, generosity that you touched on extended in both directions would definitely provide a smoother path to inclusion and acceptance. In terms of enforcing such equal treatment, perhaps via legislation beyond the educational element that you touched on, how do you think legislation can be more effectively recognised in the workplace, as well as how the law itself can actually become more accommodating to different types of diversity? Well, firstly, the law really doesn't, at the moment, fully engage with non-binary people. So we might have, in, in our first instance case, and it has to be remembered that Jaguar is a first instance case, although it's from a very experienced employment judge, and it's very firmly based in, in Parliament's intention. So in the several months since the case has been out, I've not heard any substantial criticism of the legal basis for the finding. But it's more a matter of now there's a need to work through workplace policies um, for employers to understand that there might be non-binary people out there that they need to take account of. And I think what we've seen over the last 20 years is certainly as that acceptance has grown, people have felt able to be themselves at work. And so there, there are people out there still who have not come out at work and, and presumably might or will. In other, the Equality Act perhaps is, is reasonably sorted in that respect, although there's a tremendous controversy about where, um, where do um, uh, people who've undergone gender reassignment fit in the sex category? So am I, properly to be uh, accepted under the record, uh, under the Equality Act as female for the protected characteristic of sex. And are, are there, there are some exceptions to that, and are they proper exceptions, and are they wide enough or narrow enough, or how should they be looked at? But the other significant piece of legislation that deals with the right of the rights of T people in the UK is the uh, Gender Recognition Act. And of course, that only reflects binary gender. There is, there is no um, third gender or no middle way in the Gender Recognition Act and in a number of ways that affect people in their life. So there's um, uh, a, a, an agender person called Christy Ellen Kane who is litigating with the Majesty's Government at the moment because Christy, would, Christy identifies as uh, agender and would want to have a gender neutral marker in their passport. And that's not currently allowed. So, and your tax records currently can only be male or female. Your driving license has a male female marker in the way that the driver number is scrambled. The part of the driver number on a pink driving license is your birth, date of birth scrambled and it's scrambled in one way if you're male and a different way if you're female, but there is no gender neutral option. So particularly those uh, who are non-binary or gender neutral or somewhere on the spectrum in between 
we are only just now thinking about how they need to be accommodated. And there's a lot more thinking and working through that to go. You know, the recent trajectory seems to be, you know, in the UK and across, across the world, and especially also in the US with recent employment proposals and last summer's, you know, uh, Supreme Court decision regarding protection from dismissal of LGBTQ plus employees, which is, you know, landmark and, and comes arguably very late. You know, why does the tra trajectory seem across the world in terms of LGBTQ uh, rights not, right now seem to be increasing, uh, increasingly focused on the employment sector. And I think that's a very good point. And, and one of the dangers of leaving things to lawyers, leaving making law to lawyers, is that it will be lumpy. I mean, Taylor and Jaguar Land Rover could have been argued at any time since the Equality Act became law in 2010, but it took until 2020, it took 10 years for the right case to come along. Now, the legislators can, could have made that change at any time, or made that clear at least at any time. I mean, arguably they did make it clear in 2010, but we had to discover that piece of law. Uh, at the moment, I mean, the world has many priorities at the moment, and it is certainly possible to leave behind things like advances in dealing with people of, you know, who are different. And what we need to do is embed as we make legislation to embed consideration of people of, of you know, people of difference when we make though, any new law. And I know that the coming generations have got difference, you know, and regard difference as normal, amongst other things, and exciting and interesting and straightforward and just something that we need to work around. Maybe the older generations haven't got that to the same extent. And we need to make um, younger and different voices heard. And I, I think, you know, perhaps this is not the epitome, but a small grassroots effort in, in, in that movement by having these podcasts and trying to increase uh, education. And I also am part of other youth groups. and I do think it, it is incredibly important. Branching out to the more general, the, um, this case has brought up recurring, the recurring trend that LGBTQ individuals are more likely to suffer from mental health issues, given obviously Ms. Taylor's struggles with depression due to, her, due to the harassment that she endured. Where um, two in five LGBTQ students, which is actually 42%, have hidden their identity at university or work for fear of discrimination. In what ways do you think more support can be provided to these people, either in like the workplace or like at school, university? Yeah, I think we've touched on some of the themes. I mean, some of the themes are to normalise difference and just to accept that, that, you know, people have an infinite variety and that there's nothing threatening or difficult about that and that one group um, isn't a threat to another group. You know, trans people are not a threat to women's rights. Um, the fact that people, some people find religion tremendously personally helpful then we need to find a way to accommodate that with other protected characteristics and to understand that we live you know in infinite variety on a single planet and we need all to work to work together with us with each other and that's um i mean that's where i start from in life i have a very strong disability practice and particularly non-visible disabilities which you know takes us into the mental health area and They've been a, for a long time, they were a taboo subject. You know, if an employee had a mental health issue, that's it. They would drop down a well somewhere and got rid of. And it might take more work to understand a mental health 
issue than a physical issue. Um, uh, and you might have to ask more questions or do more research, but we learn all the time. And if we do that, we move towards a better world. And jumping off uh, learning all the time and the struggles that come with that and the mistakes that come with that, what's something that you feel people misunderstand about you and then onwards into the wider community of the LGBTQ umbrella? Uh, what do people misunderstand about me? I think um, there is one thing that has to be knocked on the head, and I still have to knock it on the head, is that there is no crossover between trans and sexuality. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, that's certainly something the wider population do not understand still. A significant proportion do not understand that whether you're trans or not has absolutely no relevance to what your sexual orientation might be. Um, there's also an element of fear fear of the unknown and i know that very clearly i i was privileged to have a very diverse uh, upbringing in that my father worked for a big construction company and i attended primary schools in my early life that were very diverse and then later in in my primary schooling we moved to somerset which is one of the least diverse counties in the country where there, there were just no ethnic minority people, for example. And I, I, I was really surprised by it. But what it taught me, what I took away from that, was that there were then people who had not experienced someone of an ethnic minority in, in their village or in their community and didn't experience that necessarily as positive. You know, it was fear of the unknown, being scared of the unknown. And... I then went to university in London, you know, the melting pot of the world, really. And um, my first degree was from Imperial. And we had probably more overseas students at Imperial than virtually any other college at London University, which was great. And you had all those exciting, interesting, uh, diverse cultures and differences to, to explore and be part of and talk about. And we have to work, those of us who know it's not, have to work to show that difference is not a problem and that a difference of experience and a difference of background can bring richness and variety to everything we do. I think a fear of the unknown is most certainly where a lot of the stigma and uh, discrimination against the queer community stems from. Are there any current LGBTQ plus related issues in the world that you feel should be further discussed or raised awareness for? I think, I mean, there's a big issue at the moment that there is a significant movement, particularly in the UK, that suggests that, um, that there is a conflict between the T and the, LG, and the LGB part of, of that group. And I, I'm sorry, I'm not clear about it because um, I work hard to accept people of you know, whatever background, whatever characteristic. And as long as everybody approaches things in that way, then there really isn't a problem. There is clearly also a significant view that in some way trans rights and women's rights are in conflict. And once again, I think it's a complete misnomer. Um, and I think it needs to be, when you bring it down to the practical level, I mean, I laugh about, uh, I, I was privileged to give evidence to the Women and Equality Select Committee of the House of Commons a few weeks ago. And the, demonization of trans people as a class was clearly there in some evidence that, that was being given to the committee. But when you bring it down to the level of um, 
when you're in the supermarket on a Saturday and you need to go and use the loo, which loo do you go and use? You know, and what should I be expected? I I be excluded completely and have to drive ten miles home to home to use use the loo? I mean, that that's just ridiculous. And it brings it down to that practical level. And I think there's an element. I think sometimes it's where I have a contribution to make because I fight I fight grassroots workplace cases every day in my working life where managers have to deal with issues like that, and you can't deal with it at sort of floaty um theoretical level you have to come down to actually how do people rub along together and how do we find a way to rub along together and actually that's the way ultimately to to work things through and not to be in trenches throwing hand grenades at each other you know that's completely the wrong thing to be doing i'm i'm also i'm not i'm not very supportive of no platforming which is quite you know, there's there's been quite a big debate about no platforming. I think if it's a difficult issue, I mean, my job and anybody's job as a lawyer, if they end up as a lawyer, particularly if they end up as a barrister, is to go to court and argue through really difficult issues in court and in a respectful, appropriate way and, and allow the court to come to a conclusion on them. And more of that, I think, would be the right way forward if people's views are unpleasant and unacceptable, get them out and let the sunlight shine on them. And then we'll see them for what they are. That would be my view. And here's an example. I mean, I did a trans case a couple of years ago, which actually didn't, didn't actually end up being tried because it settled. But there was a person in a university who uh, was transitioning and wanted to use the sports club facilities and need needed to change from their day day wear into their sports club wear. And how do you accommodate? Now, this person was early in their transition. And so when they appeared in whichever changing room, um, there was an element of surprise, perhaps from the other people using the changing room about this person's presence. How do you deal with that? And, and the odd thing, I mean, the odd thing about transition is it's a process. I mean, you don't, People don't become overnight, they don't change from black to white, unless they're Michael Jackson, I suppose. But um, I think he spent a bit of a fortune on that, didn't he? But, um, you know, trans people, the odd thing about being trans is that you people go through a transition process that takes a time and they present differently at the start of the transition process than at the end, often, or more or less successfully, uh, sometimes. And that has to be worked through and you have to work through. We talked about, you know, there being an element of respect for colleagues and working with colleagues about that, people around you in terms of that. And we have to work through as a society how we handle that. And we haven't yet. We, we are in the, the birth pangs of working through that still. And we, we as a society need to have a proper, respectful, open debate about that and see if there are real trouble, real difficulties, and if so, how do we solve them? And speaking about your transition, I think it would be really interesting, um, insight-wise, would perhaps be, you know, have you found that your experiences with clients or people that you meet for the first time or during the, the trial um, process has changed since presenting and going through this transition to become um, your gender identity? Um, what insights did you, engage, um, did you gain from experiencing, you know, this transition from both sides of the coin 
you know, in terms of how people perceive you. Just a fascinating thing to have been through, actually. So one, one funny story from transition is that obviously there's a time when you're transitioning, there, there's often a time when you're one thing at weekends and something else during the week as you work towards the moment when you can socially transition at work. And that was certainly true for me. So I was sort of female at the weekend and, uh, sorry, male at the weekend. Now I've got it wrong there. Male at the weekend and female, no, female at the weekend and male during the week. That's right. And I went to the Birmingham Tribunal once and, and with a heavy heart on the Monday move, I, I travelled up on Sunday night and on the Monday morning pulled my work suit from my wheel along bag with a heavy heart thinking, oh, I've got to climb back into this. And then realised I'd got to Birmingham with no male shoes. And so there I am and I'm doing court at you know, 9.30 or so. Um, what do you do? Well, fortunately, I was in central Birmingham and not the middle of nowhere. And so what you do is that at 9.15, you're outside Primark in your socks and you, with your case papers under your arm and your laptop and your bag, and you buy the cheapest pair of male shoes that Primark had, and you then throw them away the following weekend. Um, so, you know, you've got to, you have to treat the world as essentially ridiculous and, and roll with it. I think, especially, you know, from my own personal experience, being able to come to university and come out fully, were um with my sexuality was very very freeing uh, in a sense that i didn't have to worry and also a lot of the worries that i did have didn't materialize you know i worried that you know if my sexuality came up in a conversation or didn't come in a conversation people would see me differently or would you have any general advice that you'd give to to first year you studying could be anything doesn't have to be related to lgbtq just as a concluding oh. note yeah uh enjoy the law it's I get as much fun out of my legal work 25 years on as I did when I started. And I mean, maybe that comes also, there's a, I get more difficult stuff to do now than when I was younger, but equally I have such a good connection, I think with my solicitors and, and with the, the judges that I work with and all the rest of it, that it's just a fun place to do. And a great privilege actually, because obviously you're handling matters that are, for your clients are fundamental to their life sometimes are really important life events for them they place immense trust in you and that's a tremendous responsibility but it's actually tremendous fun cross-examination is the second most most fun you can have with your clothes on and um, you know that thing about what would i do if i won the lottery i don't actually play the lottery but i would never give up being a barrister it is just tremendous tremendous fun and you're going to have to do, you know, you're going to be at work for eight hours a day, five days a week for a big slice of your life into the future. Come and do law if you think it's fun. And if you don't think it's fun, go and do something else. Go and find something that for you is fun. I think that's a great way of summarising and, you know, concluding um, how we should look at life and how we should go about in, in life, regardless of, you know, any hardships or uh, potential uphill battles that we need to go through for um getting to where we want to be uh you know as individuals and as a society um so i suppose you know we thank you a lot for coming today and to speaking to us especially so honestly and so giving so many personal examples and i think our listeners uh will be very you know pleased to hear from someone with so much experience but also um such charm <laughs> it's been a pleasure and a privilege thank you <laughs>